Greetings, my name's Andrew Sumner. My grandfather, Pop Smythe, bought me my first comic book in Liverpool, England when I was three years old, and I spent the next 50 years hurtling around the pop culture kaleidoscope, first as a fan and then as a journalist, editor, publisher and presenter. Along the way, I met a bunch of interesting people who will be joining me here. Creators, performers, professionals and public servants. We live in divisive, fractured times, but art and popular culture connect people from all viewpoints and from all walks of life. I'm often struck by the passions people enjoy, that they can set aside their differences for and agree on, whatever those passions are, whether I share them or not. And that spark, that moment of instinctive, connective agreement, that's what I call a hard agree. When I was in the States on the various tours for those books, I'm pretty good mates with Bob Wayne. We used to work together a lot on that stuff. And he introduced me to you. Yeah. I had a show about 20 years ago. This is for like two minutes. And yeah. you signed my, <laughs> and you signed my copy of Sandman Mystery Theatre number one. Oh, right on. Uh-huh. So, where, so where, where was that? What show? You know? Uh, I, I am trying. Do you know what, mate? It's a long time ago, and I'm trying to remember. I'm absolutely trying to remember. And I've got it, and I've got the book, and I looked at it before, and you signed it. I can't remember what the show is. I've got no idea. It could have been San Diego. It could have been New York. It could mm. have been one of the Midwest shows. And I just cannot remember, mate. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. Nice yeah. to see you again. <laughs> hey, it's nice to see you again, brother. So, so Ken, so I, 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 I record a podcast for the guys at Spoiler Country. They were going to record you for Spoiler Country, but instead we're, we're going to we're going to do you for my show, which is called Hard Agree. And the the principle of Hard Agree is uh, talking to people about their careers and then using that as a conduit to talk about the things about that, that they are passionate about that we can all agree on to some degree, right? Sure. And but I have to say before we start, a Kenrick is absolutely gutted that he can't talk to you because he's a massive Grendel fan. Oh, too and, bad. And I'm a huge fan of yours, mate. I've 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 read a massive amount of of the stuff that you've written, which we'll get into. I'm of course a big Grendel Mage fan, but but I'm, I think Sam, my mystery theatre is like one of my top favourite books of all time. You know, yeah, right on. Top Great, three or four. So we'll, we'll get into all that. So first of all, mate, how are you? Where, where, where are you coming at me from? I'm in Portland, Oregon area. Uh, I'm in oh, yeah. a suburb just south of that. We just had a, a rotten weekend. You know, we had this giant heat wave here. It reached yeah. 115 degrees. We luckily had an escape route. We had a friend that has a, a beach house that she was out of town. She lent us the beach house. So we had a little bit of escape. But even down there on the Oregon coast, which is normally quite cool and moderate, Sunday night, it was still almost 90 degrees at almost nine o'clock at night. So. I mean, uh, but it's I, all completely broken, and now it's just absolutely gorgeous here. So. Well, that's lovely to hear. I was very worried for you guys and for my spoiler country colleagues in Seattle because you guys, oh, yeah, I mean, added that too. Yeah, you, I mean, you're on the same parallel as us here in England. Normally, you're not hitting weather that like yeah. that, and you've got yeah. far too many trees for it to be north of yeah. 100 degrees. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, hell of a year we've had too. Because so at the end of last summer, we had uh, these horrific wildfires that that burned and burned and burned and we were we were in a level one evacuation zone for a while and the level two zone got almost up to our our house we were literally sealed in our house for over a week some days you couldn't even see across the street the smoke was so thick it was just terrible and then just this winter we had this like freakish ice storm that came and I live on the edge of a woods. And so everything got coated in ice and then the power went out for almost a week and it was 30 degrees outside, 30 degrees Fahrenheit outside. 
And, and oh my God, for days and days and days, we just heard branches and whole trees just thundering to the ground all around us. Luckily, oh, nothing no. in our house, but a lot of people around us got a lot of damage to their, their house or their deck or whatever, you know. So yeah, crappy year in addition to the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, in, in, in addition to pandemic, yeah. in addition to political chaos in the Western yeah. world. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, because we, because as you know, in the UK, we've got all of the same problems that you guys have had. Certainly yep. with COVID's been, you know, not brilliantly handled by the government here. The, the vaccinations has been well handled, but, you know, yeah, the response, yep. yeah. But that's the bit they've got right. The, the Biden I mean, you you've got at least got the Biden administration in now. We've got yep. still got the same far yeah, right wing clowns. Yeah, literally the worst government, not just of my entire life, but that I can ever think of in the democratic, you know, British era. You know, just unbelievable, you know, mendacious, lazy, stupid. <laughs> I mean, incompetent. We, well, we just had one of those too. <laughs> <laughs> We luckily got through it, but <laughs> mate, mate, these are strange apocalyptic times we are living in. That's that is it, for man. sure, absolutely. Yeah. Now, believe me, when I'm doing Grendel, I just feel like, oh God, it's not you know. <laughs> no, like, I'm just holding a mirror up to the world. You know, it's supremely so. prophetic. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a good point to say. Welcome to Hard Degree. I'm Andrew Sumner, and this I'm privileged to have here as my special guest on this show, the one and only Matt Wagner, a man whose comics I've loved for such a... I was embarrassed to realise what a massively long period of time it was when I when I looked at the timeline. But I've been a great admirer of your work for well over three decades, mate, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Oh, no, and, a, you know, yeah. in regards to that, you know, I just feel like I'm very proud of my longevity. You know, as you well know, the, the yeah. comics world is a turbulent scene, and... yeah. A lot of people don't last, you know, and I'm still doing my own thing. And, and uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to be actually be working with my son nowadays, you know, who's yeah. grown up to be a, a fantastic colorist. And so I feel, I feel very blessed to, to have made it this far. Yeah, I, I think I, I, your son, by the way, has been a guest on Spoil with my colleagues at Spoiler Country, and uh, they they loved having him on the show. Oh, and, I didn't uh, uh, no, I yeah, realize that, but okay, yeah, yeah, no, they loved having him on, and, and I, I think it's always wonderful when you when you're in a situation like you're in. And the other person I can think of is in a similar situation to you is the great English artist Sean Phillips, who now has his son Jacob do his uh, colors. So, oh, really? So, oh, I was yeah, aware of that. Okay. all of those great Brew Baker and Phillips not noir crime books which i imagine given your interest you're at least yet yeah, tangentially aware of that they're all colored by jacob now so yep. Must, yep. i'm very close to to my own two kids uh, who both of whom are you know adults male female adult and to get that opportunity to work directly on something creative just must be such an incredible feeling well he's actually working in my in my studio these days. Yeah. And what's really neat about that too is that very, very luckily our, our musical tastes just completely mesh. He's got all, he loves all older music. And, uh, you know, as he was growing up, I was always trying to expose him to the music I liked and, and newer music, you know. Yeah. And and now the roles have switched. Now he DJs for us all day long. And he says, Dad, I'm going to play this list. And, you know, <laughs> so absolutely it's really brilliant. Now, yeah. now, now, something I touched upon just before we started, when we were, before we were recording, 
is that I used to be a music and movie journalist. So you're touching upon one of the many things that's very close to my heart, primarily mm-hmm. comic books, movies, you know, music, which I've always found indexed massively. Generally, if you get somebody who's into comic book culture, they're nearly always a massive music fan. Sure, and a, yeah. a lot of like, you know, a lot of contemporary music fans are big fans of comics, big fans of movies. So what, what is what would you say were your, your biggest influences musically or your great music? loves oh well you know i always compare the early days of the indie comic scene you know back in the early 80s yeah. to the punk like, rock. Look, kamiko days yeah yeah kamiko and and uh, the early days of, of first and eclipse and, and all yeah, that you know the initial the initial the initial rush of that stuff to the punk rock scene and it had this very much this uh do-it-yourself aesthetic and breaking away from the mainstream to to kind of kind of get back to the core of what we really loved about comics to begin with that had gotten kind of lost in the shuffle uh, for uh, both mainstream music and mainstream uh, comics. You know, you know, I'm a giant fan of the Beatles, Elvis Costello, the Ramones. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I just sent my son. Yesterday was Debbie Harry's birthday. My son is like the world's biggest Blondie fan. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah. And just yesterday, I, or yesterday was her birthday, and I found a photo somebody posted online of a famous shot of her and Joey Ramone with their arms around each other. And I sent it to him, and he just said, We're not worth it. But, you know, I have a. I have really wide ranging musical tastes. So long as it's so long as the music's honest, you know, I feel yeah. I feel a real kinship to it. And like I said, he's uh, he's now this, you know, he he has his uh, Spotify lists and and I have mine, and they they're pretty damn similar. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, that, yeah, that, really. that's a beautiful thing to hear. I mean, I think the analogy to the the days of punk rock and the early days of uh, the independent press in comics really when it bit in the in the in the mid 80s the interesting thing for me about the 80s in that kind of mid post punk new wave era is the the music that came to be sort of ascendant from about i guess the mid to late 80s to the, to the early 90s was was very very synthesizer driven right and and i think it's when you listen back on that stuff now i've encountered many like tunes that I loved at the time and I listened to them now I'm like oh man you know there's not a single naturally played um, note in the bunch here and it sounds quite jarring it's like sometimes when you a movie that I love but I sometimes struggle with on one level is um, William Friedkin's To Live and Die in LA I've always loved that movie and it's got a, a soundtrack by Wang Chung which is great but it's also just about the most perfect expression of an 80s artifact that yeah. I could ever think of. Yep. Yep. And when, when you're watching the movie, the, the music gets in the way because there's all these massively jarring synthesizer yep. chords yep. layered over everything. Yep. yep, yep, I totally agree. Yeah. It, 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 but at the same time, it, as you said, it's so it's so plants it in its time and place. You know, it's like you, there was never any confusion about when this movie was made. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's to- yeah. it's totally rooted. It's yeah. totally rooted. I, I mean, a film made at a very similar period of time, which, uh, in a weird way, dates uh, uh, dates less extremely. Is is Streets of Fire, which is a semi nonsensical film, but yeah. because it's got that Jim Steinman soundtrack, which is. Yeah as overblown as it could possibly be. Yeah. I mean, there's the roof and they blow the roof off and there's the yeah. glass roof and they blow that off and they yeah. just keep on going. The extremity of that movie has always amused me. But actually, as a listening experience, you can just get into it because it's rock. It's overblown rock and roll. Yeah, I, I had that soundtrack. I played it to death for, you know, when that 
when that movie was fresh, you know. Oh, right. And those two far incorporated songs, the ones that the ones that Diane Lane brilliantly mimes to, by the way, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, they're, they're fantastic. They're like yeah. almost like yeah. pure Jim Steinman in his yeah. most extreme form, right? Exactly, yep. So, so, so Matt, you, we, we've touched upon that period of time in the early '80s where you f- first blazed onto the hey, scene. Hey, before before we before we go ahead here, let me just let me just tell you a fun little anecdote that illustrates what I meant there about the punk rock thing. Because part of it was the the slapdash nature of everything. You know, nowadays yeah. everything's so. You know, when we're when we're producing a new book, especially now that the bookstore market is involved, you know, you have to plan so far in advance. You have to do a cover what, 10 months before the book's even going to come out, something like that. But back in those days, it was just like a band would get together and they'd put on a show that weekend, you know? And so I always tell people the story of when I was finishing up the very last issue of Mage. And Joe Matt, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, right? Well, at that point, he was a college buddy of mine and he was helping me color that last issue, which was colored in the very archaic fashion of blue line coloring. So we we had stayed up all night to finish it. And the Kamiko offices, I was living in Philadelphia at the time, the Kamiko offices were outside of Philadelphia. And so we had, you know, this Friday, this book had to go out to the printer or else it was going to cost us more money. And of course, that's a big no-no in small time publishing. And uh, so, oh my God, we stayed up all night. We were just frazzled as shit. And we, we gathered up all the art and we ran to the train and we got on the train and took the train out of town to the Kamiko offices. And Bob Shrek, who worked at Kamiko at the time, um, met yeah. us at the train stop, picked us up. We went to the office. We pasted on all the page numbers by hand on every single page <laughs> and we packaged it up and we rushed off to FedEx and we got there three minutes before they closed. And I, and I just thought, you know, boy, that's punk rock, man. That's just, you know, really, rush, rush, rush. We're doing it right now. You know, it really is. It really yeah. is, mate. I mean, I, and that's, what's beautiful about it. Right. It, yeah. It's not what must've been, that it must've been so creatively effervescent for you guys living oh, in was, that moment. I was in a, I was in a daze of, well, we got really, really fucked up that night. You know, we got very wise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd have been just, I've been disappointed if you didn't get fucked up, yeah. mate. Yeah. Yep. And, but then I was just in a daze for day, you know, just a haze for days afterwards. And I was like, wow, that's all done. I just finished my first epic storyline, you know. But yeah, it, again, the the slapdash nature of, of everything back then, you know, really, uh, I, I got to say, I miss it, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, no I, I get it. And, and of course, at that age, when you're in those moments, you, you can handle it as well. You know, you've got a ton oh, of sure. energy. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's not what dragging you down like those moments can, you know, kind of in later yeah. life where you've got a lot yeah. of responsibilities. Actually, yeah. they kind of, you know, walking along the knife blade is is something that, you know, you get a massive amount of when you're in your, your, your early 20s and, you know, yeah. you're sure. trying everything, yeah. you're throwing everything around sure. to see what works. And as a result, you, you, end up, you end up making some terrific creative decisions, you know, when... Yeah. When it's do or die, you know, you can't, you can't mess around with this. You got no time to be fussy. You, you have to, you have to decide things and make them work and move ahead. Side things, make them work, move ahead. Yeah. And that, that's always been a thing I like about comics too, is the, uh, oh, it just doesn't, you know, of course there are comics that, you know, have taken years and years and years to produce, but I, I kind of like the fact that comics force you to move ahead at a brisk pace. You know, I would compare it to, you know, the, the Beatles main period of production. You know, I, I always point out to people, all those songs, all those songs that were so, such a, have become such a piece of the fabric of, of artistic life in the 20th century. They produced all those in the space of seven years. Yeah. And, you know, nowadays a, a band can have 
five years between one album and the next, you know, yeah. they, and what really worked for them was the record company saying, boys, we need an album by November, you know, <laughs> yeah. they, they just like, well, okay, got to do it. And, you know, you, you, to come up with the just fabulously creative stuff, you know. You are totally speaking my language here, mate, because uh, I'm actually from Merseyside, born and raised, right? Oh, great. Uh, and, uh, and of course, you know, the Beatles alongside Liverpool Soccer Club are just a huge religion where mm-hmm. I grew up, yeah. Mm-hmm. And everybody's got the Beatles story of when they met someone. My dad used to work with, my dad's got two interesting stories of your music fan. He's got a load, but these are the two key ones, I think. He used to work when he was a young man alongside Jim McCartney and yeah. Paul's dad. And at a certain point, they'd go for their 11 a.m. kind of coffee break and my dad would be one of the young guys in this office and Jim and his mates would be the old guys in this office and Jim would be going, oh, yeah, my lad's like playing at the cabin. He's got this group and blah, blah, blah. And this went on for a period of time. Then one day, Jim just wasn't there anymore. It's like, oh, where's Jim? Oh, he's retired, you know, because we <laughs> built him a house on the Wirral, which is like the, the posh part of Liverpool. And my dad was all, I've talked about this in this podcast before, but so I won't labour this point, but my dad was uh, Jerry Marsden's bank manager. So, you know, if you're, if you're familiar with... Um, Jerry and the Pacemakers, who recorded, you know, Ferry Across the Mersey and You'll yeah, Never yeah, Walk no, Alone. Yeah. yeah, right. He was he was networked into all of that. So, it's, wow. you know, it was, a, it was it, that was an amazing piece of time. But have you, Matt, have you ever read that book, uh, Revolution in the Head? Yeah. Uh-uh. Have you heard of it? Right. I, I will, uh, when we're done, I'll send you a link so you can see what this book is. It's, a, it's written by a musicologist who's now passed away. It's written within the last 10, 15 years. And it basically goes through every day that the Beatles had in the studio and what they were recording. Oh, wow. And it charts their musical growth from, you know, recording Please Please Me all the way through to recording Abbey Road. And the amazing thing is that period of time you're talking about, it's actually the real creativity is an even shorter period of time than that because it's really... The sure. step change is rubber soul, right? And it's rubber soul to, to Abbey Road. Yeah. It, it's an amazing piece, I think, of cultural history. Not just history within the last 50 years, but history of the world, you know, since history has been recorded, that these four guys from a very blue-collar city in in the in England actually grew up within five miles of each other and then had this creative alchemy between them, you know, and, and then went on that incredible growth journey that they did where they went, they were recording covers to they were just creating these never even imagined of by anybody else sonic soundscapes. It's just an unbelievable my, story. My son's absolutely convinced that they were either aliens or, or travelers <laughs> from the future. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're probably an alien race and and, and the, the advance guard was like Elvis who like yeah. literally never has, you know, nobody has ever looked like Elvis before or since, right? Yeah. He's yeah. got to be an alien. And then yeah. John Paul George and Ringo, it makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah, I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> so, 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 mate, in that in that in, incredibly creatively fertile period of time, correct me if I'm wrong, but my memory certainly is that I think your first published work was that Kamiko Primer, Kamiko Primer Number mm-hmm. Two, yeah, was, which had yeah. which has literally the first Grendel story in it, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what was your journey? What what was it that took you to that point? At what point did you know you were going to be an artist? And what was your story between zero and when you got the? Well, so I always knew I wanted to be an artist. I, I grew up reading comics. My mom was an English teacher and always encouraged me to read, read, read. Unlike a lot of English teachers of her generation, she didn't mind that I was reading comics. She thought I'd grow out of them. 
know? yeah. <laughs> said I grew into them, you know, but very, uh, very my parents had a, a school memories book, you know, yeah. one of those things where you put your photo and, you know, your height and weight and all that stuff, little mementos and stuff from your years in school. And on the back of all the elementary school years, it said, had a spot that said, what I want to be when I grow up. And one year I wrote astronaut, and I have to assume that's the year they landed on the moon because every kid wanted to be an astronaut then. Every other year I wrote comic book writer, just because I, I, at that point, I assumed whoever wrote them drew them too, you know. So then I I went to, uh, I went to a university, a liberal arts university, but then I transferred to an art school. And, you know, I had no... I grew up kind of out in the country. I had no no firm concept of the actual business of comics. In addition, the business of comics was so localized at that point. There was no FedEx. There was no overnight delivery. You had to live within train distance of the publishers. You know, yeah. you had to. You came into the office in person, and so you all had to be around New York. You came into the office in person. You got your assignment. You went home. You brought it back in person a week or so later. You know. And I was nowhere near that. I had no access to that. But then I, I transferred to an art school in Philadelphia. And one day on the elevator, I met uh, some guys that later formed the nexus of Kamiko, my first publishing company. So as you said, I developed Grendel for that, for just a spotlight story in Kamiko Primer. And at the time, what I was trying to do was uh, there weren't many anti-heroes in comics at that day. You know, Marvel had tried to do occasionally a, a book called Superhero or Supervillain Team-Up but never really sold very well. But, you know, I always point to specifically the work of Michael Moorcock had a big effect on me. The Elric saga, you know, it was the first stories I'd read that were, had this very uh, compelling, but truthfully kind of evil and unlikable main character. Right on. Yeah. And so I think that had a big effect on my development of Hunter Rose, you know? Yeah. Um, Mate, uh, uh, just to interject, that's so yeah. interesting because I was going to ask you that because Mike Moorcock is a friend of mine and I, it, mm-hmm. when you check out the Hard, hard Degree Strand, you'll see that one of the things that we do is Mike and I have a regular sub-series within Hard Degree called Michael Moorcock's Multiverse, which is wow. him and me just talking about his life experiences. Where, and you'll know if, you spe- if you've ever spent any time with his, with him, his his life experiences are nuts. He's just got like so many amazing stories. And so it's just a, a kind of venue for him to lay those stories down. Oh, yeah, you know? I'll have to check that out because I'd be totally interested in that. That's great. And and that I, I've, I'd often wondered about that, that confluence between Elric and and between Grendel and, and to hear you say it, that's a. I don't need to ask you that question now, but it's totally and, fascinating. And, you know, to it me. was it was not, you know it was a combination of of that that narrative, but also just the sheer act of growing up. You know, of course, like any young kid, I believed in heroes and I loved stories of heroes. But then, as you get older, you you realize that that's kind of a fantasy that the good guys usually don't win. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and so these other sort of tales that had this cynicism to them really started to appeal to me, you know. Additionally, I was influenced. I had learned about the Italian character uh, Diabolique. Uh, oh, and man. I love uh, Diabolique, yeah. Yeah, there's another one called Criminal. And they were these, you know, they Hunter, the Hunter Rose version of Grendel definitely owes a, a, a debt to them. You know, they were these kind of gentleman thieves that had their own twisted codes of honor, you know. So so could, then... Could, uh, could I ask uh, at that juncture, Matt, actually? Do, yeah. do, what do you think of the movie? The, the Mario Baba one? Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, it's a- I, I love it. And it's, again, surely uh, up until recent times, for, for decades, I think, that was the purest expression of, of a comic book being placed yeah. on the screen. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And 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 just like we were talking about there with the Streets of Fire, you know, a movie utterly rooted in its time and place, you know. Yes, uh, yeah. 
it is it is definitely the 60s you know oh 1000 percent, yes yeah yeah so so then the the guys that the guys that started Kamiko, we were each going to do our own book and we started out and they were all black and white and this was before the the big black and white boom you know so they weren't selling that well because nobody wanted black and white. It, hard to tell that like five years later, everybody would want black and white, you know? So so I started Grendel and again, the, those titles didn't seem to go much of anywhere. But then Kimiko made the decision to move into color publishing yeah. and they wanted, they had a, a book lined up, Evangeline, that was written by uh, Chuck Dixon. Yeah. And it, in those days specifically, they did something called gang printing, which meant that the printing presses are so wide that you can fit enough paper to print two books at once. So it's yeah. cheaper to do two books at once. So they offered me the chance to develop a color book and that turned out to be Mage. Yeah. So I started Mage and, and that's where my, I really started to start to figure things out. You can see me growing and becoming a better artist and better writer with every single issue. And uh, it was around that time, I had just abandoned Grendel, the Grendel storyline. It was about that time that I started hearing back from other readers saying, hey, what about that other book you did, Grendel? You know, whatever happened with that, you just stop. So that's when I re- worked Grendel to be the backup feature in Mage, and that ultimately became the uh, the first Grendel graphic novel, Devil by the Deed. So from there, everything at, just at took this, off. At you know? this point, I guess, we're talking around about sort of... 85, 86. 85, 86, yeah, yeah, right on. Yeah. So as I was wrapping up Mage, Kamiko approached me and said, look, we'd like to do Grendel as a monthly book. And I said, well, that's going to be kind of hard. I just killed the guy. Yeah. So, <laughs> So, so I struck upon this idea to do this generational sort of approach to the character, have, yeah. have the central character become different characters, you know, different people yeah. become Grendel. Inspired kind of by the, the approach of the old Phantom comic strip by Lee Falk. Brilliant. Um, and of course, you've got a massive pedigree, because the Phantom to me has always been kind of pulp adjacent, and you yes. have a massive pedigree in the pulp aesthetic, which yes, we'll, yes, we'll talk about a bit. Pulp, yeah. 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 But at the same time, I, I wanted to ch- try and change things up. You know, it was a very young stage in my career. And I, you know, when I finished Mage, at that point, the industry awards were called the Kirby's, not the yeah. Eisner's. Yeah. And uh, and I got a bunch of Kirby nominations and I was getting a lot of accolades and a lot of people pat me on the back and such. And, you know, I'm grateful in the fact that I was smart enough to be suspicious of that. Yeah. At that young age, you know, and I, I realized, uh, well, no, I, I can't have everything figured out yet. This is bullshit. I, I, you know, I'm just starting out. I gotta like stretch my wings and fly, you know? So the only stuff I had ever done was to write and draw for myself. So I decided, Hey, let me try to write for other artists. I just finished this long Epic, two long epics, in fact, simultaneously. So let me take a break from that for a little while. Let me step back. Let me write for other artists. So that's when we started the whole thing of having other artists draw Grendel that I would write. Yeah. Yeah, And the other kind of aesthetic motif I brought to the book was that the only way I could see to make an ongoing series interesting for myself, and my approach has always been that my stories have to be interesting to me before they're interesting to my readers. And the only way I could do that was to do it as a continuing series of miniseries, have it keep reinventing itself over and over again, have it change, have it change not only in narrative tone and narrative style, but also in visual tone and visual style. And so the plan from the very beginning was to keep having different people become Grendel and to keep having yeah. new artists come in that would uh, really shake things up and change the style. And uh, yeah, we kept that going for many, many years, you know. And, and yeah, absolutely. I, I see that. And that's surely this, one of the secrets to the book's longevity, I think, is the it's, it's encoded in what the book is, that you can just keep it rolling like that. Yeah, yeah, very much. 
And, you know, I, I, I will give some credit to Bernie Miro, who was the artist on the third arc of the book. We were sitting around, we were probably sitting around getting high one day, and he said to me, uh, you know, hey, could could Grendel ever, and he was speaking of Grendel as a demonic force, which, of course, I in the book, I try to never fully define whether that's true. It could be that, it could be something else, it could be a change of perceptions, it could be a societal zeitgeist that just refuses to let go. But in the way he was speaking of it, he said, could Grendel ever inhabit a crowd of people instead of just one person. And I suddenly decided, let's have him inhabit the whole world. <laughs> so that's when I started to move things ahead in the future and have this yeah. future scenario where there's a ton of Grendels and, and the term Grendel is turned on its ear. It's no longer the bad guys. It's the military elite of the world, you know? And so that opened a whole different vista of, of opportunities for stories and, and narratives and, and visual approaches, you know? And what was it? I have to say, mate, that I know you were talking about the, the what that rolling roster of artists brought to, to the book. But I think to to my, you know, I'm somebody who loves comic book art, but is not an artist, you know, I'm a journalist, right? But from my perspective, what I think's always been wonderful about your artwork is it always felt fully formed to me uh, probably didn't to you because you know you're living with you in your own talent your own life but to me it, you know i think one of the one of the elements to your you know great longevity is that your art's been very consistent over the years and 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 is is i think is you know is, the, the artwork you deliver now is still in great shape but when you go back in time and see even that early stuff you were doing it felt really fully formed to me yeah, I mean, you know, we were talking about the Beatles there. It, you could almost view my career like that, right? You know, yeah. I mean, uh, the early stuff the early stuff had a simplicity to it, and I got more sophisticated as I went, you know. Yeah. And yet, it is still the same group of four guys, you know what I mean? The, when yeah. you listen to early Beatles stuff, it's obvious it's them. When you yeah. listen to later Beatles stuff, it's obvious it's them. I find that's the same with my work, as you said there, you know. Even the early, cruder examples of my work, you still see all the elements that are there in the later, uh, more developed examples of my work, you know. I, I think that's a, a beautiful and spot-on analogy. I also I also think it's very interesting that, that you describe yourself as having some degree of skepticism about the that early celebration and recognition of your work. Because outside of the Kirby's, correct me if I'm wrong, I think when did the Eisners begin? That was it was around about 88, maybe just before that. And, and very early on. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. You were nominated for a, a, a Best Writer Eisner, weren't you? Very early on for Grendel, right? I'm thinking it must have been about 88 uh, or something. Yeah, I was. All right. So I have, I have a very charming story about that. So I was a presenter at the very, very first Eisner Awards. Brilliant. Okay. Of course, pretty small event, you know, because it was brand new. It was at San Diego. I was also nominated it for... it was at the hotel at this point, right? Yeah, right. Than, yeah. Uh -huh. Yep. Uh, and I was also nominated for one or two things. So, so Will gets up and he gives this keynote speech about the event and, and, oh my God, it was so moving. And, you know, he just went on and on about his love for this medium and how he feels it's so untapped and how, when he looks at younger artists, he sees the potential that, that he always hoped would be there when he was trying to develop his art. And, and if by just lending his name to this event, it helped further this art form to become more mature and more ubiquitous and more successful. You know, he was very honored to not a dry eye in the house, man. And every, I want to go home and draw comics. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so we get through the award ceremony. I didn't win any of the things I was up for. 
And we do some photos of all the presenters of which there, I don't know, there are like a dozen of us at that point with Will and, and the administrators of the awards and everything. So my wife and I go back to our hotel and uh, we get in the elevator and it just so happens to be the same hotel that Will and his wife, Anne are staying at and they get on the elevator at the same time. Right. And Will's just, he's just flush with this event. You know, he's all practically giddy. Yeah. And, and he recognize he doesn't really know me, but he recognizes me from being on stage. And he says, Oh, congratulations. And I had to go, I didn't win anything. Will. and he leans <laughs> over and gives me this grandfatherly squeeze on my shoulder. And he goes, yes, you did. <laughs> I almost broke into tears. Man. <laughs> That's such a brilliant story, man. Yeah. How wonderful. Uh, yeah, that was, that was truly great. But, but then, you know, then from there, I've just always tried to, you know, I just realized, you know, unlike a lot of my colleagues of my similar age, you know, I, I didn't start out like Miller and Mignola and all those guys. I didn't yeah. start out working for the big two and nice. discover indie comics. You know, I did it the yeah. other way around. Yeah. So, you know, I've always had this approach when I went and worked on mainstream comics that it was almost like me doing cover songs of stuff that, you know, that really inspired me when I was young. You know, I, I knew that was not going to be the crux of my career. You know, the, the crux of my career was going to be my own stuff. But I always had fun playing with the the, the big boys toys, you know. Yeah, I, it, it's like it's like going, guys going out and, you know, having their own bands and their, their own records and then signing up for... Ringo Starr's all-star band and going yeah, on tour with yeah, the all-star band yeah, with Ringo and then coming yeah, back, doing their yeah, own stuff again, yeah. going back on tour with Ringo. It, it, it's that kind of thing, right? And, and yeah, I, 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 that's so interesting. I'd never thought about it from the perspective that you said, that you began with Indies and then took your talents into other areas. But I, I think that's one of the, that, stamping your ownership on your work in the way you did really early on, I think psychologically must be a great place to be in given the issues many people have had working for the majors and creating stuff out the gate with the majors not doing that i think is must have been a pretty healthy thing because oh absolutely and if you look at all the stuff i've done for the majors it it's always been it's always been me very significantly working with an editor that trusted me and and knew to just leave me alone don't 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 try and put a thumbprint on me. It ain't going to work. And, you know, you had mentioned uh, Mystery Theater. Uh, This is a perfect segue into that. So, you know, I had met Karen Berger several times at cons. She had always kind of had an open invitation, you know, bring me, bring me something, you know, let's, let's do something together. And uh, so I was also at this time, a big fan of Guy Davis's uh, book, Baker Street. I don't know if you've seen it. Yes, I have. So good, so good. Yeah, and if, if I'm, you're I'm a huge viewers, fan of his, if your viewers don't really know it, it was an indie book published by Caliber Comics in the '80s, and it was basically a punk female Sherlock Holmes. And uh, I just love Guy's approach and this the way he was able to have this evoke this pulp sense without without losing the real world humanity of it all. So I, I contacted Guy and I said, "Hey man, you know, let's. I'd love to write something for you. And I've, you know, I've got this in at DC. I'm pretty sure we could uh, get something rolling. You know, if uh, if if you're into that." And he was. So I said, "Well, I'll tell you what. Go through the DC Who's Who book and find some characters you'd like to take a shot at, and let's let's see what uh, you got." Okay. Now the funny thing is. Every, all three or four of the characters you sent me were all characters in hats and cloaks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so uh, oh, the Sandman, Wesley Dodds, we know, but who else did he? Who else was on his shortlist uh, at the time? 
Phantom Stranger and yeah. who he later ended up doing a piece with. What's is there a character? Is the character's name Anarchy? That's a yeah. Batman villain. Yeah, Anarchy, the Batman villain. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh-huh. And I can't remember the fourth one. But but he had the Wesley Dodd Sandman in there, yeah. and he had a note that said, "Well, I know they won't let us do this one because of Game and Sandman." Yeah. And I said, "No, that's why they will let us do this one <laughs> <laughs> because at that point they hadn't figured out how to how to branch off Sandman. You know, of course, yeah. the special well, thing about." The Sandman was Gaiman's writing, yeah, and he hadn't yet established the uh, vast Gaimanverse that ultimately yeah. came about. But in that first issue, he had this one or That's two right. panels that connected Morpheus to as being Morpheus's magical imprisonment as being what screwed up Wesley Dodd's dreams and drove yeah. him out into the streets to try and fight crime. So I, I said, well, that's the perfect uh, that's the perfect segue that enables us to give a whole new approach to this old tried and true character. And so I decided that we really wanted to try and strike this pulp sensibility. So every every storyline was going to be four issues so that when yeah. they later collected them, they'd be the size of a pulp magazine. Right. Which is exactly what happened. Yeah. And and I, I really wanted, you know, I was a big fan of, of crime fiction, but crime fiction tends to be pretty rough and right wing in many ways. You know, yeah. you know, as I was doing research, and I, I learned all about Dashiell Hammett, you know, was a, a very, very far left politically, you know, yeah. and. You know, people tend to think that progressive politics kind of sprung up in the 60s. And boy, it really didn't. And so I wanted to I wanted to have kind of a progressive approach to this character back in the 30s. And more importantly, you know, we we took elements from the actual Golden Age stories. And one of them was, unlike many other characters at the time, Wesley God's girlfriend, Diane Belmont, knew who he was. No, no other, none of the other characters had a girlfriend who knew who they were. So the other thing that really struck me about comics and comic book relationships was they were all so angst ridden, you know, they were all so, oh, I can't be with you, that sort of thing, you know, and we wanted to have a healthy relationship. We wanted to have a pair of characters that truly loved each other, you know. And if you look at the five or six year run of that, every 12 issues, every year's worth, their relationship went through a significant step, a significant yeah. date. Yeah. So, so I think we, we really achieved that. You know, I wrote the first year by myself and then, and then I had some, a new Grendel was on my horizon again. Yeah. And I wouldn't be able to do all of that myself. So that's when I, I met up with Steve Siegel, Stephen T. Siegel, yeah. and to see if we could co-write it together. And that just worked out seamlessly. We were both very leery that that was going to work, but it ended up working very, very well. Well, well, Matt, I, 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 as I mentioned before we started, I, I truly sound my mystery theatre. It is one of my top two or three books of all time. No word of a lie. I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you. It really is. And and I've got my number one signed by you. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But I think you have gloriously touched upon a number of the things that I was going to ask you. But I think uh, as somebody who's uh, kind of uh, very left-leaning myself, I always recognise that sensibility in the book and within the portrayal of, of like Wesley Dodds with his classic sort of New Deal social conscience that he has, yes. right? <clears throat> uh, which was always very powerful to me. But I, I think one one of the one of the great successes of the book is absolutely Diane and Wesley's relationship, which grows and evolves like a real relationship does. Yep. And it is one of the few examples of a kind of seven year arc in comics of a believable real world relationship on the page. And I think it's been done very few times since. One of the one of the neat things I liked about that was at one point we did because running concurrently with Sandman Mystery Theater and equally popular was of course James Robinson's uh, seminal run on Starman. Right? Oh man! Yeah, I, I, so 
I'm so glad you're saying this because yeah, I, I love this. Is I, what you're about to talk about is an aspect that I love. So, so James and I are old friends. In yeah. fact, I met him when I was in the UK at a, a convention one time, and of course, he wrote the first Grendel Tales story arc for me. But so we decided to kind of do a crossover. And in Sandman Mystery Theater, we had the origin of the Mist, who was yeah. the Golden Age Sandman's uh, main character, main yeah. villain. And then he had Diane and Wesley show up in the contemporary setting in his Starman. Yeah. What I really loved about that was they were a they were still together. Yeah, you know, and B she had begun gone on to become a famous Pulitzer Prize winning writer. So. Yeah. He was famous and he was still in the shadows, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that was such a lovely confluence between the two of you. Uh, and I love Starman as well. Starman is also one of my top three books. And uh, I think just the way you gave Wesley Dodds a complete life and Diane Belmont a complete life, very few people have been able to do that, you know, in, in the comic book world, have been able to, you know, show somebody's arc all the way through, beginning, middle and end. And that's well, what you, got, you guys managed to do. Let me point out there again, the reason is, and I give props here to Karen Berger, she left us alone. Yeah. You know, she, didn't, <laughs> she didn't try and meddle in things, you know. She acted as a as a, a, a conduit to our creativity, not a not a steermaster, you know. And I think I think you you had some very interesting cover treatments on, on Sandman Mystery Theatre because you've you flipped the way you did the covers pretty much every four issues with those new arcs. You took a new design approach. Is that something that you, that you worked out with? I guess it must have been Richard Bruning at the time. It was a, it was a pair. It was a photographer named Gavin Wilson yeah. and Richard. So Gavin yeah. would do the, the raw photography and then turn that over to of imagery and turn that over to Richard, and then Richard would apply a new design sense. And yeah, he, yeah. we really tried to mix it up with every uh, with every story arc. You know, that was, again, just kind of what I was used to with Grendel, so we tried yeah. to apply the same uh, aesthetic there. But here, you know, we've been talking about uh, films and such, and uh, if you like mystery theater, you might even be familiar with this. What has turned out to be one of my favorite TV series of all time, have you ever uh, seen or heard of Babylon Berlin? Oh, well, mate, brilliant, you know. I, 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 I that's that's fantastic you've made that reference. Yeah, I mean, any fan of Sandman Mystery Theater yeah. should be watching Babylon Berlin. Yeah. And there again, for your, if your viewers don't know it, it's a German TV series. It is co-created and mainly directed by Tom Tykwer, who did Run, Lola, Run. And just like Sandman Mystery Theater, it, all right, it's set in, in Berlin in, in the Weimar Republic in the 19, 1929. And it embraces so many pulp motifs and scenarios, and yet it keeps it all firmly rooted in the reality, in the emotional reality and historical realities of the day. And it has two main characters who are just terrifically heroic and charismatic and likable. And, and, you know, there's, there's just all sorts of pulp motifs that (laughs) I just can't rave enough about. It's fantastic. Yeah, I I think, I I think I actually haven't met, you're the first of the person I've met who has actually watched that show. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I, 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 it's a great thing to be evangelical about. Something I should mention, I guess, is pulp and noir is a, is a massive interest of mine. And one of the things I do on the side in my day job at Titan is I, I edit the the Mike Hammer books that are written by uh, Max Allen Collins. So, yeah. so you know, Max is is and you know, Ham, Hammer's not really noir. It's more kind of 
it's actually more kind of uh, 1950s Cold War phantasmagoric fever dreams. You know, yeah, they're not, yeah. they don't read like normal books. It's yeah, just yeah. this stream of high energy emotion, homicidal emotion from Hammer, yeah. right? He's not yeah. even a detective in the real sense of the word. Yeah. He just yeah. blunders through things, beating the shit out of people and shooting people in the face and whatnot. But yeah, everything around this topic is, is something that fascinates me. And it, it's part of my love for what you did. But I think, what I love, given the fact that your, your pulp chops are, are, are so obvious, is that I think you really transcend the, the original tales, which you no doubt love. I love them as well. But there's a psychological complexity in, in Sandman Mystery Theatre, which the original pulp writers are just not allowed to get even close to, right? Or or didn't have the time for. Either, yeah, right. Yeah. On, yeah, yeah. yeah. There again. Yeah. I mean, they got a well, novel in a week, you know. I mean, that was their, yeah. you know. I mean, um, what, what was Gibson doing? It's, it's two shadow novels a month. A month, I mean, yeah, right. Un- unbelievably yeah. Pro- yeah. prolific. Yeah. The, the other thing I really liked, and I think you were really fortuitous in, in working with Guy, who, if I recall, in the early days of the book, didn't didn't illustrate every arc. You had some other artists come in. Very again, again. That was a holdover from Grendel. We were trying to mix it up and take a different approach with each yeah. one. You know, eventually it became like, Oh yeah, but guy's the best. Of but it. guy's easily the best. And what I what I love about guys Wesley Dodd and Dodds and in fact his Diane Belmont is they are regular unathletic people. They yeah. look normal, yeah. and it's one of the absolute few examples I can think of where he's portrayed as a guy who's fit and resourceful, yeah. but he's got no muscle tone. He's but he's not a gym rat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And and the fact that he's a regular guy kind of accentuates how driven he is to go and do what he does mm-hmm. and put himself mm-hmm. in harm's way when it's pro- when he's probably more of an academic the way you prog- portray him than anything else. A guy yeah. who yeah. sits around wants to sit and ponder the world rather yeah. than really getting involved with it but he can't help himself i think yeah. that was, that's such a fantastic element to the book yeah and another another thing that we farmed out of the original golden age stories is that bit where when he goes out of sandman he tucks this little effigy of himself into bed and says yeah. good night mr <laughs> wesley Dodd. that's in yeah. the very first golden age story yeah. and i just Brilliant. thought holy shit that's weird <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. and you know i was like oh gotta use that that's really yeah. great <laughs> you know I, I re- but then, I, you know, then eventually I, you know, I got to, I got to deal with a lot of other pulp stuff when I did yeah. stuff for uh, Dynamite, you know, Dynamite yeah, had, uh, had the license on a whole lot of pulp characters, you know, I originally started yeah. working with, they had done a, a reboot of the Lone Ranger, which I thought yeah. was a real clever kind of approach. And really the made John it Cassidy cool. version. Yeah. That well, was he that. did the covers, he, he did, did, but they, it really kind of made it a young, fresh character, you know? Yeah. And then I saw they got the rights to Zorro, and I've always yeah. loved Zorro. So yeah, right on. I called uh, Dynamite and I said, hey, let, let me let me be your John Cassidy on this. Let me be your cover artist on uh, on Zorro. And they came back to me and they said, well, what would you think about writing it too? So I got to write, you know, a long run of Zorro, ultimately culminating in, a, you know, this, the crossover we did with, with Quentin Tarantino with yeah. Zorro and Django Unchained. Yeah. And uh, that must have been a real treat doing that. Mate. <laughs> that, was a, that was a fever dream too. Believe yeah. me. That was, they, they approached me and they said, uh, Hey, we're cause Nick Barucci who owns dynamite is yeah. buddies with Reggie Hudlin, who was the yeah, producer okay. on, uh, yeah. on Django. He said, we're thinking about, we're trying to do a Django Zorro crossover. Would you be interested in co-writing that with Quentin? And I was like, Pfft. Well, that's <laughs> would you be interested? That's never going to happen, <laughs> but okay, sure, you know. And I totally forgot about it. And about I don't know, a month and a half later, they called me and said, "We sent Quentin all your Zorro stuff. He loves it. He wants you to come down to his house next weekend." 
And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I kept telling my wife, this is going to fall apart at any minute. You know? yeah. <laughs> but nope, it, it all came together. I went down. He, I spent two days with him at his place and we, uh, we watched, he has this giant screening room and he loves to watch movies with people when he first starts working with them to kind of yeah. get in the same headspace. So we watched movies for two days and then in between movies, we'd go out to his deck and uh, we just sat there and cobbled together the, the idea for the story, you know. But then then I did the year one of the Green Hornet. Yeah. Right on. And uh, yeah. then I also did uh, when they got the rights to the, the spirit for the 75th anniversary. Yeah. I did uh, a long run on the spirit called The Spirit well, Returns. Which I, I love that run on the spirit. And you're almost going, I would say the two people who've done the spirit since Eisner that I've really responded to is yourself and uh, Darwin. Those two runs are yeah, kind of are, yeah. are yeah. really enjoy. I think you guys really under- have understood the character in a yeah. way that other people I can think of, some of whom made a very expensive movie about the character, just yes. clearly <laughs> didn't get it at all. Yeah. You know, from the yeah. first frame, you're like, man, you, you really don't understand what this character is. But, yeah. but you guys have really nailed it. And it must my, have been such beautiful to, uh, symmetry. One, one thing I decided with the spirit was, to go uh, with a long form story. I was going to do 12 issues and I decided to make it a 12 issue story because, you know, all of Eisner's stuff was all eight pages. So he had already, I wasn't going to get any better with a short form. You know what I mean? So why would I try and do the same thing he had done? So by deciding to make it this long running story and, uh, you know, you were talking there about the getting it right. You know, the fellow who ended up drawing that Dan Scotty was uh, a young artist who I'd known for a while. He was a friend of my son's too. And, we had a bunch of people try out and it was all just too mainstream. It was too, yeah. you know, too many lines. He looked too heroic, you know, yeah. it was yeah. just missing that vital fluid cartooniness, yeah. you know, and that, that needed that's to be like there. goofiness almost yeah. that the spirit yeah. has. Yeah. And, uh, and Dan really nailed that. So yeah. uh, we were very happy to get him. But then for me, the, the absolute pinnacle of my pulp stuff was when I finally got my hands on the shadow. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I was, was supremely excited list. when you when you got that assignment. I was supremely excited. You yeah, know? that was the end of my bucket list so far yeah. as characters I wanted to play with. You know, and uh, I, I I take it you must have been so um, pleased with how the Shadow Year One turned out because from my perspective, I was a big fan of this stuff. And somebody who gets into conversations with with other, you know, Shadow shadow fans on either side of the Atlantic. Don't know if you've ever met this guy, but a good mate of mine is a guy called Ed Cato, who's a he's a professor at Ithaca College and he does mm. a lot of... He, I, I tell you what, he's the guy who owns Captain Action these days. That's one of the... Oh, uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. And he is a huge Shadow fan as well. And we both love your your Shadow Year One. And I think you, you, you tick the box of pleasing just about everybody which is difficult to do well that's okay. that's what i had to do you know my my approach was well i can't make it just gibson's version because that's yeah. gibson's version yeah and you know as 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 hardcore as the pulp enthusiasts are you know i had to face the fact that most people know the radio version of this yes shadow, yeah. you know and 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 almost all of my younger readership on that book would know him from the alec baldwin movie yeah so i had to kind of take parts of all those and, and put them all in the, you know, a distillery and come out with my version of it, you know, my, my private brew. And so, you know, he's, he's generally Gibson's character, but he's got, you know, some vestiges of, of clairvoyant powers. You know, he's not, not like you can whip that stuff around real easy, obviously, you know, additionally, you know, he's, he's, he and Margot are a couple, you know, I always maintain that when, 
the old intro, you know, to the radio series when they would say, you know, the only, you know, and his, his constant friend and companion, <laughs> yeah, Mark well, Lane, yeah. is the only voice, the only one to know who the voice of the invisible shadow belongs. Well, believe me, 1930s characters, when they said he, she's his constant friend and companion, they know what that meant. Right. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Um, it's so true. It, it, when you listen, particularly to the first season of the first summer season, and it's Wells and Agnes Moorhead, they sound like a couple. You know, they yes, particularly yeah. they sound like a because well, they call each other darling all the time. That's that's right, and they're, they're yeah. all over that subtext. It's right yeah. there the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And you know, and from the Baldwin uh, movie, I really liked the fact that after World War One, where he was this you know enormous flying ace and this this super spy, that he became part of the lost generation. He got yeah. uh, he got morally waylaid for a while. You know. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, the the Tibetan mystics taught him how to harness his shadow yeah. in the cause of justice. That's terrific I, stuff. I, it is. I think you're absolutely right. I think it was, it was David Kapp who came up with that, right? Uh, or however you pronounce the name. I think he was the mm-hmm. screenwriter of the movie. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it's the fact that he succumbs to the darkness after the whole kind of Phantom Eagle era of his life. Yeah. Which you would do, of course, because you've got PTSD, you're stuck in the middle of a bunch of opium fields after having had, you know, been on the front line, you know, behind the lines in World War One, doing really dirty jobs, killing people up close. It all makes such complete sense. Yeah, the the other thing is, the other thing I always tried to do, which I really tried to tap into more with uh, the death of Margot Lane, is, of course, you know, The Shadow's a pretty, like Sherlock Holmes, is a pretty blank character emotionally. And, you know, I certainly didn't want to make him weepy or, or, you know, or or anything like that. But I I, I tried to tap into some emotion that he has with Margot during that storyline, you know, and how, you know, her loss would absolutely devastate him, you know, number one, the loss of his lover, but also two you know, a, a huge, a huge failure on his part, you know, which turned yeah. out to not be the case. But and it was also my chance to like, I've always just hated Shiwan Khan that like Shiwan Khan's always the goddamn villain, you know, yeah, like, right. come on. Yeah. So I made it Shiwan Khan's daughter. And then, and then Dynamite approached me to do, uh, do the, the Grendel shadow crossover. Oh man. And yeah. you know, this let's backtrack a little bit to when I did the Batman Grendel crossover, you know, that was a huge thing in its day because that was the first team up between one of DC's flagship characters and an independently owned character. And following both of those, you know, we did one with Hunter Rose and one with Grendel prime a few years later, following both those series, I got approached to do a lot of Grendel crossovers. Believe me, everybody, yeah. everybody that had their moment in the sun with an indie character came to me and wanted to do a crossover. And my thought at the time was like, well, after Batman, where do you go? You know, I like I can't top that, you know. But the one character that's kind of even dearer to my heart than Batman is the Shadow. So when yeah. that came up, I was like, well, yeah, that's the one I can do. <laughs> yeah, the progenitor, the the ultimate yeah. archetype. I, yeah. I I think yeah. that's I think that's beautiful. You 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 touched upon Batman there, and I loved Batman Grendel, but I also have really enjoyed your 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 dips into Batman over the years. And I was wondering of those Mad Monk, Monster Man, Riddle Factory, what. What's what's to you is your favorite of your Batman books that you've worked on? Well, so there's also Faces, the thing I did for oh, uh, Faces. Is, yeah, that was, great. that was yeah. that was the first Batman thing I did. You did Trinity as well, of course. And I did Trinity. Yeah, I I don't know. They're all, you know, I I, I like those. I like the I like the Batman, the Monster Man, and Batman, and the Mad Monk. They were originally supposed to be one 
storyline that DC decided to broke broke up into two miniseries, mainly because you know I love that Golden Age stuff because and those of course were two Golden Age storylines that I took yeah. and uh, and kind of rebooted for a contemporary audience. But you know, people. <sighs> Most contemporary writers, I find, often tend to lose the heroism in Batman. They 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 focus on the angst too much. So I liked doing this storyline that was kind of early in his career, where he still thinks he's going to win. You know, he still thinks yeah. this is going to work, yeah, yeah. and he's got a girlfriend. You know, yeah. and he's looking forward to the day when he can hang it all up and, and yeah. be with her. And I, you know, again. Everything for me is trying to find the human core in all of these uh, outlandish stories and outlandish yeah. characters. You know, that even followed through with when my, when my old buddy uh, Bob Shrek moved over to Vertigo, you know. Yeah. He asked me uh, to do a revamp of Madame Xanadu. Oh, man, I love that book. I mean, you must um, have done, it's about almost 30 issues of that, right, mate? Yes, we did. Yeah, a little more than 30. And I, you know, at first I was like, oh, God, Bob, I don't know. I don't. I don't really have any connection to this character. Let me let me look around and and see dig up stuff. And, and she was a pretty vague character at that point too. You yeah. know, she because uh, she'd really almost been like the uh, like a horror host, like, like the Rod Serling character, like yeah. the Elvira yeah. almost. Yeah, yeah. And yet, in I forget where it was, but they mentioned that she had this kind of ongoing enmity with the Phantom Stranger. Yeah. And boom, immediately that was it for me. I was like, oh, well, if they hate each other, that means at one point they loved each other. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let me tell that story. Yeah. <laughs> and there again, that that was this mystical character that didn't have much definition. And yeah, all of a sudden sure. I had a human, a human core to work with, you know. Yeah. Um, for, for both of them, brilliantly designed characters that had no depth whatsoever. They were ciphers in a way. Yeah, so to, to, yeah. to get to inject all of that. Yeah. Uh, well, I, certainly, it's a, it was a, it's a tremendous amount of fun to read for that reason. But as a creator, it's just got to feel great. It strikes me as we've talked through the, these these planes of your career, like how many times you've actually had the opportunity to do that, to flesh out these concepts that because they're either they either date from an era where you know comics were less sophisticated and the industry was different, or simply because the characters filled a need. They're essentially a host or the Phantom Stranger, Madame Xanadu. Yeah. But you've repeatedly had these opportunities to flesh out these underdeveloped characters that are brilliant archetypes at the same time. Yeah, I, and I enjoy doing it too. Yeah. One of the neat things about that storyline was, of course, you know, we're all familiar with the contemporary look of the Phantom Stranger, you know, that hat, the turtleneck, that that medallion he wears and the cloak. And, and we were going to span like from ancient Britain, from Arthurian times to modern day. We we're going to hop through centuries over the course of 12 issues. And uh, so I sat down to do a quick redesign to provide to my artist, Amy Reader, who, you know, Bob Shrek insisted on hooking me up with her. And I was like, at that point, she really looked very, very manga. Yeah. And the only stuff she'd done looked manga. And I was like, well, oh, Bob, I don't know, man, I'm not quite seeing it. And I was proven completely wrong. She did a fabulous job on that. But I sat down and uh, tried to redesign the Phantom Stranger so you would know immediately who he was, but through the ages. So with like a druidic cloak and the medallion and then later uh, a, a French tricorn hat and the medallion yeah. and a cloak. And then later a top hat for Victorian yeah. days and yeah. a cloak, a, an opera cape. And the and then it just kind of flowed seamlessly. It was like, wow, like, all right, we can tell that that's the same guy through all these different generations wearing kind of the same getup, but yeah. with the different contemporary aesthetic of the time, you know. 
Yeah, I think I think uh, that it's such a beautiful concept. Two two other of your DC books I'd like to get into, both of which I'm very fond of. One was essentially almost like a a kind of I, I, it struck me at the time like it was almost like a piece of tone establishing, which was when you when you started off the the reboot of of or not reboot but the 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 regular non Kirby version of the Demon. Right, because mm-hmm. he did he did those first four issues, as I recall. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I think that Garth Ennis came on almost straight away after that. But maybe there was there was a, a period in between. There I was a remember. brief period afterwards. So I will say, I got to give credit where credits due here. You know, Etrigan had appeared in Swamp Thing, yeah, and it was right all on. Yes. gave him the uh, the rhyming, the rhyming, uh, speaking yeah. in rhyming motif, which I just thought was brilliant and yeah. creepy as shit. Yeah, and uh, and so the way that happened was I was at a convention in where Atlanta, and this is in the days when conventions were so small that they took all the guests out to dinner at once, right? And I happened to get seated next to Dick Giordano. Yeah, and the great Dick uh, Giordano. Wow, yeah, what what, great great guy. And and so we proceeded to get drunk together, and he offered. He said, "Bring me a bring me a concept. You know, bring me a a pitch on a, a character." And so I brought him a pitch for a new Batgirl. And this was in the days when Geraldine Ferraro was uh, Walter Mondale's running mate in the United yeah. States for vice president. So I had Barbara Gordon running for vice president. And Brilliant. there's a murder on the campaign trail and she can't be Batgirl herself. So she gets a new gal to be Batgirl. They already had plans to cripple her in killing jokes. So I couldn't yeah. do that. So he said, but bring me something else. What do you like? And I said, well, I always like the demon. Great, bring me the demon. So, you know, my my thing was to separate the demon and Jason Blood and then have Jason basically become almost the demon's hunter, like trying to trail him. Yeah. Uh, I never got to go that far, and they immediately kind of put them back together in, uh, oh, what was it? Cosmic Odyssey, a thing yeah. that Jim Oh, Sterling yes, did. yeah, right. So I never got to do much of anything more with it. But I mean, I, yeah, that, I, I that was such a nice concept, I think. Yeah. The idea of him tracking down himself. And another book that you did, kind of in that era at DC, that, that I really loved, great artwork by the, the great John K. Snyder as uh, Dr. Midnight. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that was, that a, fun, that was a fun... Uh, that was a fun project, too, because what we wanted to do there was to make him the superhero already. So that if you go through and look at that book, you know, once he puts on the costume and everything, he's not that different. Yeah, he's still right. doing the same shit. He's still this like vigilante doctor, you know? Yeah, and that was right. a tough thing to, you know, how do you do a yeah. vigilante doctor, yeah. you know? So that was a tough, you know, he doesn't go around punching people. You know, that was a fun thing to come up with. And yeah, John's artwork on that is just spectacular. That, that was a great series. Oh, it's a wonderful book. And it's, a, it's it still exists today as that great collected edition. It's, it's so lovely. Matt, did you have, I, I meant to ask, I, I did you have a real affinity for the, for the Riddler? Because I know you did your Riddler book and Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm fairly certain you did a Secret Origins for the Riddler as well at some point. No, I was part of a story that Gaiman wrote, Bernie Miro penciled, I inked, and Joe Matt colored. Right, that's it. Yeah, Yeah. okay, yeah. This is this. I was just the anchor. I didn't have a whole lot. I've got it. Yeah, this is the rusted door of memory, mate. Yeah, I always loved the Riddler due to Frank Gorshin because, of course, he wasn't that major of a character till Gorshin. God did him on screen, you know, and really outshone the Joker. And in, you know? and in the TV show, he's the primary villain, actually. Yes, yeah. And, and yeah. he has what he has that Cesar Romero's Joker, which I love for many reasons, but what that that crazy, you know, mustached Joker doesn't have is Gorshin's Riddler has got that homicidal energy you would normally yeah. associate with. He's with the Joker. He's he's kind of truly unhinged and dangerous in that show. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, he's like he, you could just he's gonna bounce off the wall at any second. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I I love that. So as we approach the end of our conversation, mate, when it comes to what we've been discussing about your comics career, I'd just like to to leap around and kind of end on another aspect of where you began, uh, and to just talk about Mage briefly, which always struck me as a very personal project for you. And could you just tell me what the genesis of Mage was and, and where sure. it came uh, from? So I had kind of always been a fan of Arthurian fiction. And and when when I got the chance to do this color book for for Kamiko, I, I decided to do a thing about the return of King Arthur, you know. And I had started a similar, I had started a story about the return of King Arthur previously, well before I would ever be, truly capable of following through with it. I was quite a young artist and it was, it was terrible. You know, it was just absolutely ordinary. You know, it was, it was set in a weird apocalyptic world and there were mutants and he fought mutants and, you know, he had, a, he, he left a little ring mark, talk of the phantom, he left a little ring mark with a dragon in their forehead, you know, and then DC announced they were going to do Camelot 3000. Yeah. And I was like, well, there goes that idea. Um, and, and, you know, besides that, Brian Boland guy draws a little bit better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think he's a genius, but I don't think he, I don't think he does better than you. I, I think uh, I think that's a nice self-effacing statement. So, so then it came out, and it just did nothing for me because yeah. it just seemed so obvious. You yeah. know, it was just like, oh, they're all they're all knights. They've come back to the modern yeah. world, and they're wearing armor. And I, I don't know anybody that wears armor. You know, yeah. or you yeah, know, yeah. carries around an actual sword for fuck's sake. You know, and 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 King Arthur's wearing a. A Superman costume. He was wearing red, yeah. yellow, and blue, you know? Yeah. And and so that got me to thinking, well, maybe there is another approach to this, you know, something that's more immediate and more personal, you know, and more down to earth, you know? And so one day I was, this is when I was living in Philadelphia and I was down at the waterfront just doing some sketches and I happened to draw myself. And I had done self-portraits before, but this one had a certain um, world weariness to it that yeah. other portraits I had done of myself didn't. And I drew another character that ended up being kind of the basis of mirth. And, and I thought, you know, if, if I'm going to redo a myth, I have to personalize it. I have to make it in this world. And like I said, I didn't know anybody that wore armor. I knew guys that wore jeans and t-shirts, you know, and, and ran around through the alleyways. And, and, you know, nobody had a sword, but a couple of guys I knew had baseball bats stuffed under the front of their car seat, you know. And, and so that started the process of that. I didn't quite realize when I started it, how autobiographical I was truly going to make it. The fact that I was just by happenstance working aspects of my life and my emotional reality at the time into the storyline. And of course, you know, the, the three parts of the mage trilogy really follow Joseph Campbell's archetypes for the three stages of the hero's journey. When I started mage, I had never heard of Campbell. And I knew nothing about really? it. That's fascinating. And years later, when I read, after I'd finished Mage, when I read The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is his big treatise on the subject, you know, I read the, the first stages of the hero's journey, and it was like a point by point plot breakdown right of Mage. Yeah. And, you know, on one level, I was like, whew, well, I got that one right. <laughs> <laughs> and on another level, it struck me as like, wow, this shit really is hardwired into us. You know, yeah. this, these archetypes work for a reason. And these, He's right. These uh, myths follow these pathways because they are echoes of our psychological development as human beings, you know? And so, so I started to get more specific with the second and third parts. I, I 
I followed his breakdown for the second and third stages of the hero's journey, but in an effort to still keep that freshness that I had in the first one, not knowing his work, for both the second and third series, I didn't write anything down. I didn't do any breakdowns, no thumbnails. I sat down with blank pages and I started to draw and I let it take me where it would go. And that, that is fascinating. It, it's, I, I don't want to make that sound like I didn't think about it at all. I did. You know, I, I, I knew points I wanted to get to, but I didn't know where it would take me, you know, or how I would get there. And in fact, I read years later, I read uh, Stephen King's uh, memoir on writing. Yep. And he talks about kind of following the same thing. You know, he, he doesn't really, he's not a copious note taker. He, he comes up with characters, he comes up with concepts, and then he pushes his characters into that concept and he follows them through the story. And that was very similar to the way I approached Mage, you know. And, uh, you know, Mage is notorious for having taken me so, so, so very long to complete. But I think that's one of its strengths in the long run, you know. Originally, I intended to go right into Mage 2, probably a year, two years after finishing Mage. And then, of course, uh, Kamiko had their big bankruptcy scandal, and that tied up everything for a while. And I got deflected in other interests and other creative endeavors. And then when I came back to Mage, I realized that that break was necessary because I needed to live more of my life in order to reflect on it and mythologize it, you know? And, uh, and also very importantly, I got to the point where in addition to not doing the, uh, the layouts or anything, or, or even writing down anything, I tried really hard in between book one and book two and book two and book three to not think about Mage at all. I didn't, oh, I didn't want to lock on any stories, uh, story ideas or concepts that I would grasp too hard and would end up becoming stale. You know, I, I tried to, I tried to keep it very fluid and keep pushing mage away till I couldn't push it away anymore. Yeah. Till all of a sudden I found, I couldn't think about anything, but, but mage that I, you know, now's time. Now's the right time. Now it's time to address this period of my life that I just got through and translate that into Kevin Matchstick. And, and it worked beautifully, you know, in that regard. You know, specifically, I point to the fact that in the third volume, you know, it involves my wife and my kids, you know, av- yeah. avatars of my wife and yeah. my kids. And I realized that I needed to let my kids grow up before I could portray them at the younger age that they were. If I was trying to portray them when they were that age, I would have idealized them too much, you yeah. know? I, I needed to kind of see what sort of people they were going to be to see that person reflected in their younger selves and be able to portray it. And, uh, and so that worked out too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so the fact that Mage took me so long, I think is one of its, uh, its greater strengths, you know, in the, in, in the long run narratively. It's fascinating to hear you tell that story. Very interesting to me because it's almost the complete opposite of how I thought you'd done it. Yeah, and, yeah and good. Now, now I hear you. Now I thought you. I thought you sat down fairly early on in life, had a kind yeah. of overarching plan that you sketched out, and I thought that I thought what had happened is having that overarching plan on some self-determining, self-actualization level, your life had come to mirror aspects of it. I, I, and I thought that's it. I really want to get into that, but actually, yeah. what you've just said makes a lot more sense. Yeah, you know, that's sure. much more plausible. Yeah. But, uh, it would have been too um, staged otherwise. You know, yeah. again, I had to let life unfold and then portray yeah. it, not the other way yeah. around. I mean, I was even coming up with shit till the very end. You know, the the I had this I, I had this this revelation moment on the next to last page. You know, when Kevin and his family, you know, the adventure's all over, they come back to the real world. 
His wife, who's a witch, a magic user, has a, a familiar, it's a, a purple cat with bat wings. And, but when they yeah. come back to the real world, it looks just like a regular cat. And uh, Kevin's daughter says, oh, look at you, kitty. You look like a regular kitty now. I'm going to call you Domino. All right. At one point when my daughter was young, we had these two cats and we had names for them. And she just decided one of them was named Domino. Even though we kept, we couldn't talk her out of it. We were like, no, that cat's name is this. No, he's Domino. And I only realized that as I was penciling that next to last page, I was like, oh shit, she's going to call that cat Domino. (laughs) That is is fantastic. That's part of of the the freshness and the joy I get working on it in that fashion. You know, I don't work on any other project that way. Yeah. But but for Mage it just fit, you know. I I I'd say it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to hear. It's made it more resonant. I think I'm after having this chat with you, I'm gonna go back and reread it from that perspective. Because yeah. I think uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that'll be very interesting. It's so different from what yeah. I thought. But it it's lovely hearing you describe it. Where did Kevin's name come from? I don't know at all. <laughs> so just that because such an unusual choice I, here in the uk we had uh, i don't know if you've ever heard of a british actor called trevor eve yeah and his daughter alice eve is uh, is quite well known yeah, actor. Know, she, eve, yeah. yeah she's in one of the star trek movies famously yep. and and it's her daddy's very well known tv actor in the uk and he starred in a in a 1980s private eye show called shoestring and the character's name is eddie shoestring and oh, so uh-huh. uh, and, and of course that's a name that nobody would ever be called mm-hmm. but the minute the minute that uh, i i read kevin's name i thought man that's another one of those uh yeah i don't a, know where another name like that. i don't really know where mirth came from other than oh no i do know where mirth came from one of the earlier versions of merlin's name is Mirthin. Yeah. I'm pronounced. I'm butchering that Welsh. I'm sure, but uh, but I just shortened that to Mirth. But the creation of Edsel, when I was working at the Kamiko offices, which were in a suburb outside of Philadelphia in the early early days, one day one of the guys came in and he said, "Hey, there's a garage up the road here, and they've got an old like vintage Edsel. Let's go take a look at it." So we went up and we took a bunch of photos of it and everything, and I that's how Edsel came about. Oh, mate, that, that's awesome. I, I, and Matt, to rock us back into the present day, what are you working on at the moment? A uh, new Grendel series, following yeah. up on Grendel Devil's Odyssey, which, so, you know, once again, always trying to mix things up. When I finished yeah. Mage, I decided to come back to Grendel, and I wanted to do a Grendel Prime story. And I just felt like we, you know, we'd been in that world, the, the futuristic world with the Grendels and all, and the Grendel Khan and the Grendel clans and all that for long enough. So I decided to send Grendel Prime into outer space. And this was my opportunity to kind of pay homage to uh, Heavy Metal Magazine. The early Heavy Metal Magazine had such a huge effect on me when I was 16. And, and it, you know, the, that, the motif from those early heavy metals of like a lone adventurer in space, hopping from planet to planet, that's pretty much been lost in contemporary science fiction. Yeah. So I got a chance to do that and, and kind of do a little riff on Gulliver's Travels at the same time. And, uh, and of course, the publication of the, of the series got interrupted by the pandemic. You know, it was an eight-issue series. We got the first half, four issues out when the, the, everything closed down. But then just recently, uh, Dark Horse put it back into production and the final issue is getting ready to come out middle of this month. And, and then I'm on to the next series. And it, the end of Grendel, Devil's Odyssey greatly changes the entire Grendel universe. So, so just always more changes. Never, Amazing. I'm never, uh, That's, I'm you never, never, you never, never stand still again. I'm never, I'm never, that's what I'm looking for. I'm always itching, itching to, yeah. to keep moving, you know. 
I'm like a shark. I got to keep swimming. Right. On. <laughs> well, well said, mate. And in the world of for the world of great the great pulp archetypes, is there anybody left? Have you completely have you completely emptied that ticked off that bucket list? Have you got anybody? Yeah, else I was never. Uh, I was never much of a, uh, a Doc Savage fan. So I thought you might be able to do a good uh, get, take a good stab at the Avenger. That's what I, I was thinking. I, I thought the Avenger would, would you know, be something you could do. There's aspects well of the Avenger that that I kind of like, and there's some silly stuff that I don't like. It's one of the things that always got me about you know Doc Savage was the uh, you know his crew of five guys. It was just like <laughs> yeah. he's got this crew of five guys, and like none of them do anything as well as he does. So why does he need these guys? You know, yeah, yeah, right. You know, they're not like the Shadow's operatives. The Shadow yeah. is the mastermind of all those operatives. He sends them. You go do this. You go do that. That's completely different. How about the Spider? Have you ever felt any any heart? You know, the spiders. <laughs> uh, the spider is just like a more psychotic version of the shadow, you know, and uh, and that's never really appealed to me. Uh, Dynamite offered me the black bat at one point. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so not I went and read a bunch not, of those. They're not uh, very so, interesting, though, are they? The- they sure aren't. Yes, yeah. you're right. <laughs> <laughs> that was. I said to him, guys, these just aren't very good. I just can't really yeah. get behind it you know reading the phantom detective right it, it's like man i i just you know it's it, it's you struggle to work your way yeah through i it. wish i liked this better yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely yeah so i don't know you know of course the shadow's just the king of the pulp characters and now course, you know I, yeah. I would definitely do more shadow stuff you know you know i might like to do if anybody got the license i might like to do a, a nick and nora charles story but Oh, at lovely. the same time, you know, I kind of did that in Sam and Mystery Theater. They they had echoes of Nick and Nora for sure, you know. So, Matt, I've, I've got something for you, which is, like I said, I used to work for Time Warner UK. Uh, and one of the companies that formed what Time Warner UK, which was a long time, was called IPC, was called the Amalgamated Press. The Amalgamated Press used to publish in the uh, in the 30s just before the advent of the war the thriller magazine which used to reprint shadow stories but anglicized yeah oh. so, so so basically inspector joe cardona becomes sergeant joe carton right oh. and uh, are they all and set in london are they all uh... they're all set in london yeah they're all set oh. in london oh. and they change the references from new york to london and they change some of the language but broadly speaking it's the same story but oh. interestingly i'll i'll send you a bunch of scans of it you'll be fascinated yeah, uh, yeah. and and also he's lamont cranston but he isn't ken tallard he's lamont cranston they give him a whole origin which is just t- told in a standalone tech story of basically he's a ruined law. It's a, it's a really classic British hero adversity type background. He's a, he's a really famous lawyer who is ruined by a bunch of like fraudsters and it is made to carry the can for something. And he does time in prison. He escapes. And that's how he makes his way to, you know, the other side of the world and, huh. and, and takes on the Lamont, the, the Lamont Cranston identity. Wow! Yeah, huh. yeah so that's completely it's, different. That's it's amazing. completely different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, they give they give um, they give Burbank a first name like Richard or something. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, you you dig it, mate. It's it's fascinating. I'll send it to you. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. sounds great. So finally, before before we go, and thanks for taking me on that whistle stop tour through your career, uh, which has given me so much pleasure over the years. What other which other comics created by other parties are you particularly fond of um so i wish i had more of a chance to do more with superman although i did just get a chance i have a this is a perfect segue for a little pitch 
a uh, little PR here. I have an eight-page story coming up in their current miniseries, Superman Red and Blue. So it's in issue number six. And since those stories did not have to be continuity connected, yeah. I was able to make it retro. And it's my love letter to the Fleischer cartoons. Oh, what? oh mate, I can't wait to see that. That's yeah. fantastic. Uh, I was really, really happy the way it turned out. And of course, it's all colored in just red and blue yeah. uh, by, by Brennan. My yeah. son. Is it your artwork on that as well, mate? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I oh, wrote phenomenal. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very, very proud of it, in fact. But, you know, I mean, my only interest in Superman, you know, okay, I have this I have this theory that, that some people dig and some people just don't want to hear anything about, which is that these pop characters that we love so much, you know, we were talking about being rooted in your time and place. They work best when they are placed in the era they were created in. That's why I don't like modern shadow. You know, I kind of yeah. liked... Chicken's first run on the, yeah, the shadow. That, but then, that first, that first four issues. Is right, pretty but then epic. it became yeah. obvious how it was just out of place. You know, you know, I always point out that the shadow only works in a day and an age when every man on the street had a hat on. Yeah. Yes. Otherwise, you're like, who's that bozo in the hat? <laughs> Why is he wearing that? Yeah, exactly. Why is he wearing the hat? Yeah. And additionally, it only works in a day when cities had shadows. Yeah. I, I don't know the last time you were in downtown London or in New York, yeah. Superman. You know, I, I know from my parents being in that era. You didn't get your picture taken all the time. So the fact that this was Superman's only disguise, that <laughs> yeah. could work, you yeah. know? The yeah. fact that he wouldn't hang around to have his photo taken. He'd yeah. do his shit and he'd get out of there, you know? Batman could not work in the, the days of TMZ and everybody has a phone in their hands. So you true. Know, a camera yeah. in there. Everybody would be figuring out that Jeff Bezos is doing weird shit with his evenings, you know? He's yeah. like, yeah. what's yeah. he doing? What's Bezos doing? No, that, would, that would... Everybody'd find that out in seconds, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, facial recognition software, you know, yeah, all that right sort on. of stuff. It just doesn't work for these characters. That's why, you know, on so many levels, the the X Men replaced that 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 zeitgeist because they are characters, they are superpower characters who want privacy, who want anonymity, and can't have it, yeah. and are forced <laughs> into the spotlight against their will. You know, usually with hatred involved. You know. And, yeah. and condemnation, you know. So I, I don't even be interested in doing Superman stuff that's retro, that's yeah. set back in the day, you know. You know, I, uh, same with Sherlock Holmes, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I, I like the Benedict Cumberbatch stuff, okay. But to me, it's all, it's cool because it's referential. It's like, oh, that's yeah. clever the way they updated yeah, that. Right. It's not yeah. its own thing, you know what yeah. I mean? It doesn't, Holmes only works in Victorian London, you know. I just, I feel the same with every kind of pop culture character, you know. So, as far as other ones now, i kind of gone through my bucket list. The Shadow was like yeah. the last one on my list, and I don't know. I think I'll just be uh, focusing on my own stuff for a while now. I got yeah. some other ideas for brand new stuff as well, now that Mage is done, so. Yeah. Well, um, I, 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 I really look forward to seeing what that is, and I think your analysis of the classic archetypal heroes versus the the situation that the... the X-Men are in is absolutely spot on and that is indeed a, a big hard degree for me right? and thank you so much uh, for spending this 90 minutes rocking me through that I really enjoyed it man you bet thanks very much man you've been listening to Hard Degree this episode was edited by John Horsley and Kenrick Regan and our theme music Golden was written and performed for this show by Liverpool's finest band Denio Hard Degree is a production of the Spoilerverse and myself, Andrew Sumner.